You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, had sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares Yahweh. For thus says Yahweh, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all nations and all places where I have driven you, declares Yahweh, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Because you have said, Yahweh has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Thus says Yahweh concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they did not pay attention to my words, declares Yahweh, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares Yahweh. Hear the word of Yahweh, all you exiles whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, 
and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah in Babylon. Yahweh make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire, because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares Yahweh. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet, not the prophet Jeremiah. That was a reading of Jeremiah chapter 29 from verse 1 to verse 23. And I want to dig in once again. Many of you know, if you've been listening to this podcast for some time, you know that I've had Jeremiah chapter 29 on my mind quite a lot in, oh, the past year and a half, let's say. And I want to deal with it again. Please bear with me. It's been a while since we've dealt with it. So for those of you who have heard me talk about it before, it will hopefully be a refresher and also all the fresher because yesterday's episode was Oh Jerusalem by Larry Collins and Dominique Lapierre. Please forgive me, anyone who listened to that and thought, what in the world are you talking about? It was 2.30 in the morning when I recorded that episode. I might be a little bit sluggish. I might be a little bit confused. I don't know. I'm still feeling the effects, even though I slept much better last night. Today is the day after, of course. It is March 25th, 2022. I recorded yesterday's episode, technically March 24th, although it still felt like it was March 23rd. It was 1130 at night that I got a call from work saying, can you take a look at some of the issues that we're having? We can't get the alarms tab to show up consistently. It's disappearing on us and then it's coming back. And also there were some issues with the uh, Econode display. Information wasn't loading in for some sites. And long story short, 1130 at night should not be when you wake up after having gone to bed at 10 to 1030. An hour of sleep is not enough to go on. It really isn't. But since I was awake anyways, after fixing this issue, I recorded that episode about the book, Oh, Jerusalem. Go back and check it out if you dare. I think the write-up for the episode is probably more on point and more focused, although I do talk about some things in the podcast episode that I don't talk about in the write-up. So check out both if you've got the time. Let me know how bad it was, what's the damage to my credibility moving forward. But we're just going to move on. It is what it is. If it was confusing, forgive me. If you took anything useful away from it, I'm glad to hear it. But working off of some of the things that come to mind in reading Larry Collins and Dominique Lapierre concerning the founding of the modern nation of Israel, one cannot help, as I said in the write-up and in the episode, one cannot help but puzzle at where the beginning of the story really is. Where do you chart the beginning of the story of the founding of the modern nation of Israel? Do you say that it's 1917 with the Balfour Declaration, 
where the British government made a public announcement, a public commitment to a national homeland for the Jewish people. 1917 is when the British took Palestine away from the Ottoman Empire. It was all wrapped up in the story of World War I. Do you have to go back to the beginning of World War I in order to talk about that? For that matter, why was Palestine in the possession of the Ottoman Turks? Do you have to go back to the beginning of the Ottoman Empire, talk about hundreds of years of history with the Ottoman Turks? Do you have to go back to the rise of Islam, the conquering armies of Islam? Do you have to talk about Muhammad? Do you have to talk about the Romans conquering Palestine? How far back do you go? Well, it makes sense to me that we maybe should, for the sake of time, go all the way back to the loss of Israel, the first loss of Israel after the founding of the nation of Israel. And we won't get into detail in this episode about the breakup of one nation into two. That's kind of how it starts, in a sense. But at first, you have one nation, under God, indivisible, (laughs) with liberty and justice for all. And I'm not talking about the United States of America. I'm talking about, in Os Guinness's words, the Magna Carta of Humanity at Sinai. And before that, you could talk about Abraham being told by God to leave the land where he was to take his family and go to the place that God would show him. We see God making a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he will be their God. They will be his people. He will make of their offspring a great nation. When God gives this promise to Abraham, Abraham is very old and he and his wife are barren. They are not able to have children for whatever reason. Maybe the issue was with Abraham. Maybe he was just not functional. Maybe he was sterile. Maybe he was just infertile. But maybe not. Because when God gives the promise, there is some disbelief. There's laughter on the part of Abraham. There's laughter on the part of Sarah, or I should say Abram and Sarai. Their names are changed, not to protect the innocent, but to convey a landmark event in their lives as God intercedes to fulfill his promise that he has delivered, he has given for his namesake. But before the birth of Isaac to Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, there is a plan that they come up with to where they are going to try and help God along, if you will. They're going to do the work. And Sarah, or Sarai, comes up with this suggestion. She gives it to her husband. She's the one who laughed and then denied laughing. Abram, for his part, when he's told by God that he and Sarah will have a child in their old age, this will be a child of the promise, Abram laughs, but I was talking about this with my friend and pastor, Paul Pavlik, 
here recently. I think the character of Abram's laugh is different. I think it's one of surprise, but I don't think it's one of derision and scoffing and bitterness and disbelief. I think it's a, I think there's different kinds of disbelief. I think it's a he's so taken aback, kind of like that reveal scene in those house makeover shows. If you've ever watched Chip and Joanna Gaines overhaul a house, it's a great show. I don't watch it very often. I usually just watch it when my wife or my kids have it on. But it's a great show. Of course, everyone's seen it. But think of the reveal where they're covering up the house. They've just brought usually a man and his wife back to show them their new home, their old home, their new home, overhauled, refurbished, fixed up, redesigned, and they'll cover it up and they'll talk with the couple and there's the suspension and there's the excitement and the expectation and then they pull the cover away and you can see the house and this couple can see their new home, their new home, their old home, all redone for the first time. And almost invariably, you have a covering of their mouths. You have their eyes go wide, their eyebrows go up. There's some laughter, there's some crying, and there's some disbelief, a a certain kind of disbelief. There's always a wow, right? Like, this is fantastic. This is phenomenal. Isn't that amazing, right? There's this excitement, and you feel it too, and you're watching, and you, like, you, you empathize with them, or at least we do. Empathize with the couple, where you're just, wow, that does look great. That's fantastic. And you're happy for them. And it's fun, right? It's just a fun thing. It's a positive thing to see. Well, I think that's what Abram's laugh is like when he finds out that he and his wife, Sarah, are going to have a child in their old age. They're going to have a son in their old age. But Sarah, her laugh is behind the scenes. And it's a laugh which she gets called out by God for. Why did you laugh? Why do you laugh? Why are you laughing? And she denies it, which I think should go to say that it was a certain character of laugh different from her husband's laugh. Her husband's laugh was a laugh of, I'm not embarrassed to laugh, but how can this be, right? Like, I don't understand. My mind is going to have a little bit of difficulty catching up with what it is that you're saying and processing what it is that you're saying here. And for Sarah's part, she says, oh, I didn't laugh. Oh, but you did laugh, actually. Just a very tense moment. Can you imagine the Almighty God saying, oh, no, but you did. I heard you laugh. I know you laughed. And yet I think she carries that same attitude forward with her. And I think it colors her counsel, not the fact that she left, but the fact that she has this attitude of unbelief. And the fact that what happens next results in a child should also perhaps be instructive that the issue was that she was infertile. She was barren. Because she suggests to Abram that he take her maidservant and lie with her, sleep with her, and that that will result in a child. That will result in a fulfillment of this promise. But there's a little bit of hubris in that. There's a little bit of, okay, well, that's just, you know, 
thanks God. I wish you could, but it's just not possible. No, 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 no. I'm not able, Sarah says. I'm not able to do this thing. I can't do that. No, I'm too old. I'm too spent. I'm too shriveled up, used up. I'm too old. No, no, no. But with this woman, this woman it would be possible because she's young and healthy. And so I'll give her to my husband and then he can have a son through her and we'll call it my son. That was not an unheard of sort of arrangement. We see it maybe a similar way of thinking with regards to expectations that if a man died who was married without having given his wife, his widow now, a child, then the man's brother, the man who had died, his brother would fulfill the responsibility of giving a child to the widow. A similar sort of a mindset. It's counted as his brother's son, kind of, sort of, or at least it's a son for this woman who's now a widow, probably a young woman who's going to be old at some point and is going to need at least a child to look after her. But Abraham, for his part, takes Hagar. He takes his wife's advice, takes Hagar, and she becomes pregnant and she has a son. And that son is named Ishmael. Ishmael is the only son for some time. But then, lo and behold, God does bless Sarah with a child. And Isaac is born, and Isaac is younger than Ishmael. And then there comes to be a bitterness on the part of Sarah towards Hagar. Even though this was Sarah's idea, it doesn't matter. Women are not always reasonable about such things, of course. And so Sarah demands that Hagar be sent away, and Ishmael. She doesn't want to be around the two of them. She doesn't want to see them. Doesn't care what happens to them. Just get them out of here. I don't care. I'm done with this. And so they're sent away. And one might suppose that, but for God's intervention, they would have perished. They would have died in the desert, Hagar and Ishmael. And so one could imagine, too, if you are Ishmael, if you are Hagar, there's a resentment and a bitterness towards Sarah, towards Isaac, father of Jacob, who would then be called Israel. Ishmael, for his part, becomes a great nation as well. And God works with what has happened. And of course, God being sovereign, he worked through people to accomplish these things and to show his power and his goodness and his sovereignty. None of it took him by surprise. He wasn't reacting as if he was just going to make do with what people had done. And yet I think he did give all parties concerned the ability to choose. And then he intervened as he does, as he is wont to do, to show himself, to declare himself, to make himself known. So Ishmael is made into a great nation and Isaac is made into a great nation. And Ishmael, for his part, becomes the father of the Ishmaelites. And they have a distinctive culture and they have a distinctive 
heritage, and they have a distinctive perspective on themselves. They have not forgotten that they are sons of Abraham, and they don't want anyone else to forget either. But Israel has his sons, and then there's a famine, and Israel's children and grandchildren, his household, his servants, his family, move to Egypt during this famine. And the generations come and go and pass and produce after themselves more generations. And 400 years goes by. And at the end of that 400 years, God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and to tell him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. Because God has decided that's enough. 400 years, that's enough time in Egypt. I'm going to bring you into the land of Canaan. I'm going to give you the promised land, which I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it was already promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what does God do? He delivers his people, Israel, out of Egypt, plundering Egypt as they go. He shows his power and his sovereignty, his authority over all spheres, over all gods and all kings and all men and all forces of nature and all phenomenon. And he brings his people Israel to the promised land. And at Mount Sinai, God gives the law to Moses. Moses, for his part, comes down, finds that a great many of the people have made themselves an idol and are worshiping that because they miss Egypt. They miss the good old days when they were able to expect what was going to come next. Yes, it's awful, but we're used to it. It's fine. We don't know what to expect where we're going, except that we're going to have to continue trusting God. And that sounds exhausting. So how about we just go back to worshiping gods made with our own hands, gods we can see and touch and feel and ultimately control, manipulate, work to our purposes. And there's judgment. And then you fast forward. Twelve spies are sent into the land of Canaan. They come back reporting it's an exceedingly good land, but... Ten of the twelve say, the people who dwell in the land are giants and they're too strong for us and their cities are too strong for us and we can't take it and we should go back to Egypt and maybe, just maybe, we can pick up where we left off. Two out of the twelve spies say, no, we can take this land because God is going to give it into our hands. The people of Israel decide they want to stone the two spies, Joshua and Caleb. But God intervenes. And what happens next is for 40 years, the whole people of Israel wander in the desert until that whole generation that refused to go into the land of Canaan to take possession of it, which God was going to give into their hands in fulfillment of his promise, that whole generation has died in the desert because God punished their wickedness. And then a new generation has an opportunity and they take it and they're led by Joshua and Caleb. They take the land, they inhabit the land, and there's one nation, Israel. And God has made a covenant with that one nation, Israel. They will be his people. He will be their God. He will show himself to the nations through this people. Some time passes. And the people 
cry out for a king like the nations around them. They've had prophets, they've had judges, but they want a king. They have flirted often with worshiping the gods of the nations around them, and now they want a government like the nations around them. So God says, okay, I will give you a king. He gives them Saul. Then after Saul, he gives them David. After David, they have Solomon. And on and on and on. And there are all these kings. And the nation splits in two at a certain point. It becomes two nations. Judah on the one hand, Israel on the other. In the end, they both turn out about the same. They both rebel against God. They both go whoring after other gods. They break faith. They're wicked, rebellious, stiff-necked, unfaithful. So what does God do? He gives them over to their enemies for judgment. And yet, he has not abandoned them. He has not forsaken them. He is still making himself known, and he is still showing his great power and the faithfulness of his promise. And so even in captivity, he sends them prophets to speak to them. He sends them Jeremiah to speak to them, to say, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. But that's not all. God also says through the prophet Jeremiah, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Which is to say, as is always the case, as has always been the case, as is still the case today, there are God's servants speaking to God's people and telling them what God wants them to hear. But there are also servants who serve others, like the people, like false and deceptive spirits, like their stomachs. They tell the people what the people want to hear. They might be seeker-friendly, depending on how you look at it. They scratch itching ears by telling people what they want to hear. They give deceptive, dishonest messages, which are not from God, but they may be from a false spirit, from an evil spirit, from a deceptive spirit, from a demonic spirit. Or they're just trying to get rich. Live your best life now. Health and wealth and prosperity. It'll all work out. Just name it and claim it. Except there is a version of prosperity that is true, and there's a version of prosperity that is false. The version of prosperity that is true has to do with subordinating our condition to God's purposes. Being honest about it, giving God the praise and worship that is due him, believing that he will fulfill all his promises, that his purposes, his purposes and his character do not change, they cannot change, they are unchangeable. And so what do we find here? We find God saying, I've given you over into the hands of your enemies, but I have not forgotten you, and I will not forget you. I don't know how long 70 years is, whether that's literal, whether that's figurative, whether that's symbolic. 
But what I do know is that it is interesting that God works in this way. And if he has worked in this way once, he can work in that way again. And if he only worked in that way once, perhaps, maybe, just maybe, his bringing the Jewish diaspora back together in 1948 to reconstitute the modern nation of Israel, perhaps that was the fulfillment of this promise. Now, I don't know. I don't know if you could say that Israel has sought him and found him, seeking him with all their heart, or if that is yet to come. I hope that is yet to come in fuller and greater, truer measure. But does God not say in verse 14, I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Yes, he does. He does say that. So this whole question of Israel in our day being its own country, its own nation, its own power in the world. This question of whether that's a good thing, whether that's right, whether that we, whether we should stand with Israel. I mean, we should be informed by the scriptures in their totality. We should not affirm anything that Israel would do that would be sinful or wicked or ungodly, evil, untrue. We should also recognize that not all criticism of actions taken by Israel is anti-Semitism. That would just be ignorant. It is not anti-Semitism to say, for instance, that God delivered his people into exile because they had broken faith with him, because they had sinned against him. That's not anti-Semitic. God is not an anti-Semite. But what God is, is he is holy, and he is just, and he is faithful, and he does do what he says he will do. And that is very exciting for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, because it means that even the awful, horrible, no good, painful things, God will work out to the good. As Joseph says to his brothers when he reveals himself as the man with more authority than anyone in Egypt save Pharaoh. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. God used for good. God purposed for good. So also, the Holocaust, for instance, an awful, horrible, evil thing that was done. It happened. It's not some big conspiracy. It wasn't fake. No, it happened. It's real. And it's evil. We should believe that people are capable of being evil like that. But we should also believe that God is good no less when people do evil things like that. It is a mercy to all of us that God is patient. It also should be humbly admitted that we don't fully comprehend all of his plans and purposes in detail exactly precisely when and how and why the particulars work out the way that they do. That is one of the benefits that he has as God, one of the privileges that he has as God, that he gets 
to make the final decision on all those things. And also that he has the infinite knowledge and understanding and goodness and capacity, if you want to just use one word to capture all of it, he has the infinite capacity to purpose what he purposes, to comprehend what it is that he purposes, to remember what it is that he purposes, to carry it out. And we don't have that infinite capacity. I wake up at 11.30 to deal with a real issue, and I did, and then I can't get back to sleep, and so I record a podcast at 2.30, and I'm not firing on all cylinders, I'm sure. Yesterday, all day, I was grouchy, tired, less cogent, probably drove my family somewhat crazy by being grumpy and tired. I was trying not to, but I don't know if I was trying sufficiently well to accomplish the deed to all of our satisfaction. But God's not like that. God doesn't get old and senile and start slipping cogs like a certain president right now clearly is. We should make room for the fact that we are not always firing on all cylinders. You know, both my neighbor and myself were just talking here today and yesterday about learning new tasks at work and how that can be very um, mentally tiring, mentally fatiguing. You're trying to reorient the way that you approach your work routine because you're dealing with a different skill set, you're learning new equipment, you're learning a new process, you're learning new ways of thinking about your workday, you're interacting with different people, you're having to think along maybe different timelines, you're just juggling a different assortment of tasks. And it's in moments where you're dealing with a mistake made or some new process you have to understand. It's in seasons of life where you might have a lot of those all at the same time that you come to appreciate how limited we are as creatures. We have a phenomenal capacity by God's design, and yet we also suffer the effects of living in a fallen world, not being all there. None of us are all there, really. I'm a young earth creationist, and I was thinking I was going to be giving an apologetic talk here in the coming weeks, but it looks like due to cancellations over weather, a few apologetics talks for youth group have been consolidated, combined together. It really is, I'm sure, for the best that someone who was going to give a talk on a related topic is now going to combine my topic and their topic and give one talk. I think that's all for the best anyways, just with everything that's going on. We're trying to get our house sold, have a new baby, a new job, new schedule, all that. But as a young earth creationist, I believe that human history is at most six to 10,000 years old. And I happen to believe that over the past six to 10,000 years, especially accelerating after the flood, which God saved Noah and his family from with the ark, we have been getting not better and better. We've been getting worse and worse. I think that might be also part of why we rely increasingly on technology because our capacity is not what it used to be. I think we used to fire on all cylinders. And now some of us were just born with bad spark plugs. Not because God's design is not good, but because sin has an effect. Sin works over time to break down our genetic code. 
God can fix that, and he promises to fix that for those in him. When we get a new body, it'll last forever. It'll work perfect. Our brain will work perfect. Our hearts will work perfect. But in the meantime, we don't. And so you just take O Jerusalem by Larry Collins and Dominique Lapierre. It's a complicated subject. We're talking about just one part of the world, one little corner of the Middle East. How hard can it be to figure out a year or two or 10 or 75 maybe worth of history for this one little country, tiny little country? What's the big deal? And then it turns out that it's very complicated. And you're dealing with other people who are not always good, not always virtuous, not always the sharpest tacks, not always believing the truth, not always working on sound principles. And it's messy, right? But over all of that messiness, as a Christian, believing that God's purposes are unchangeable, cannot fail, they're immutable, inviolable, I have to look at this whole situation with Israel and say, whatever the merit of individual actions, plans, contributions on the part of nations, on the part of parties, on the part of individual players, key people. God has shown himself in his word to be the kind of God who works through people, nations, events, orchestrates all of the above to accomplish his purposes and reveal himself. So what part do we play? You know, we look at our own country, the United States of America, and many of us conservatives are brokenhearted because we feel as though we have a great nation which is being destroyed, which is being hollowed out and gutted before our eyes. And there's a struggle in many spheres, in every sphere, really, to decide what sort of country, what sort of people we will be moving forward. And I've heard a lot of Christians resign themselves to America falling and being destroyed. And maybe that is what it will be. If that's what pleases the Lord, that is what will be. And yet, are we absolved? I think not. Do we throw up our hands and say, ah, it is what it is. Whatever it will be, it will be. I think not. Now, we have to be careful applying too much Jeremiah 29 to our circumstance, assuming too much that we can just name and claim whatever promises are here. Verse 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That makes it onto a lot of bumper stickers and coffee mugs and t-shirts and wall posters. I guarantee if you go into any Christian bookstore in this country, especially the big chain ones, you will find half a dozen trinkets you can buy with that verse printed on them. And yet, is that promise for us? Should we embrace that? Should we count on that? That God knows the plans he has for us as a country, for America, shall we say? Now notice who God is talking to. He's talking to his people, the exiles, taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. Know also in the New Testament that the church, Christians, God's people in the New Testament are referred to as exiles. 
We are exiles. Strangers in a strange land. We can relate. And yet, I do think there are principles and there are sound and unchanging characteristics of God which we should understand from this passage. We should understand who God is better and who he will always be better. If God did for them, he is no less capable. He's not worn himself out. He's not tired and plum-tuckered. He hasn't lost strength and vigor. Now, his plans and purposes for us, they, they might be different in the particulars. He may not have plans and purposes to have America endure as a country, as a power, as a force for good in the world for decades and centuries to come till Jesus returns or calls us home. Actually, one of the other things that we should take into consideration is that just like God delivered Israel and Judah into the hands of their enemies, God certainly is capable of delivering the United States of America into the hands of our enemies. Right now, every time I get a notification on my phone of some news app I've got downloaded, I check it and odds are high that it's going to be some other reference, some new reminder that Russia is threatening nuclear war against the United States of America and our NATO allies if we intervene in the Ukraine. If we start fighting their troops on the ground, if we start shooting their planes out of the sky, they're going to fire nukes at our countries, at our cities, at our people. What they're displaying right now in knocking down apartment buildings, blowing up schools, blowing up hospitals, blowing up theaters. Just this morning, I got a headline. I got an article talking about a theater which was housing some 300 children or more being blown up by the Russians even though they had written on the ground outside, clearly visible from the air, children in Russian, in Cyrillic, children. So presumably the Russians knew that this theater was full of children. The children were being housed there, and they blew it up anyways. To let us know, to let the Ukrainians know, they will do whatever it takes to win. They will murder Children and women and men, civilian, combatant, doesn't matter. They don't care. All they care about is winning this country and taking it over and getting it and holding it and not losing face on the world scene. Would I be shocked if they start using nuclear weapons on Ukraine? No, I wouldn't. Will I be surprised if we end up getting into a hot war with Russia Will I be surprised if China and Iran and North Korea throw down? No. Am I absolutely sure? Are you absolutely sure? Can we be absolutely sure that the end result of that is several American cities in ashes, in ruins? Or, supposing we back down, we let Russia do what it will here, perhaps what we see is in the coming years and decades. A stronger Russia, a dominant China, a powerful Iran, a forceful North Korea, and either irrelevant or else colonized 
and conquered and subjugated United States. Either quick or slow. If the good Lord decides that's what pleases him, and if he decides that is justice, that is what we deserve for having claimed to be his people, and yet flaunting our sin, forgetting how to blush, disobeying him, rebelling against him, lying about what he has said and what he has not said, then God still is good. Even if he destroys us, he is still good. And yet what we read here, I think, is important and it's instructive about the character of God and what we should expect God to act like, whether he delivers us from this present crisis, whether he delivers us into the hands of our enemies, into exile, into subjugation. It is noteworthy that the character of God is such that he tells his people in captivity, in Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons, have daughters, give your children away in marriage so they can have children as well. Multiply. Don't decrease. Be fruitful and multiply is echoed here. Seek the welfare of the city. You might be thinking, you're in exile, you should probably try and destroy Babylon so you can get back home. Maybe you could take over Babylon. No, God says, build it up, actually. Pray for it. Serve it. Serve it well. This is where you will be for some time, for generations. So get comfortable. This is going to be a bit. I think probably what scares me more, to be honest with you, what scares me more than the possibility that thermonuclear war breaks out with Russia and several American cities go up in smoke, what scares me more than China invading us from Canada, because I think that is where they would come down from. I think China would come down from Canada and get us that way. I think a combination of nuclear strikes, cyber warfare, paralyzing our infrastructure, plus civil unrest here at home, particularly due to tyrannical overreach, totalitarian overreach on the part of Democrats who can't control themselves, so they want to control everybody else. I think that is a scenario which could, in the coming years or decades, be our end to where we basically just become a plantation. We become either a smoking ruin or a subject peoples. I think what's scarier than that, though, is that we would endure for the rest of our lives as a country, as a superpower, that we would endure, and yet we would not honor God where we are. And actually, I think when those are the options, I think that's actually part of why God sends judgment is because it's a mercy of sorts. It's a mercy. It's a corrective, not just to that nation, but to all the nations. And God works like that. He works to get glory for himself in all the nations. He works to bring judgment and correction, sometimes destruction flat out, but 
as a warning to others, as a just and fair and merciful warning to repent to others. He does work that way. And so whether it's one or the other or some other third scenario, I hear a lot of conservatives wondering, hey, what should we do? I know plenty who have stocked up on guns and ammunition, and I don't judge them for that. I wish I had the spare cash to outfit myself more than I have. I might be jealous, but I'm not going to scold you as far as that goes. I also know plenty of Christians who seem almost to wish that we would collapse as a country because they've bought into a fatalism, which I think is some parts cowardice, some parts laziness, some parts confusion as to what the responsibility is before God, according to his word. So what I think from looking at Jeremiah 29 is I think to myself, whether you're Israel reconstituted 70 years ago, whether you're the United States of America, whether you're conservatives here in this country, we can busy ourselves with a positive and well-established God-honoring approach. If we build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, seek the welfare of the city where God has sent us in our exile, pray to God on its behalf for its welfare, because our welfare is in its welfare, and don't let prophets and diviners who are among us deceive us. Don't listen to the dreams that they dream. They lie. They lied back then, and they still lie. There is no new thing under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says, as Koheleth, the teacher says, the preacher says. You know, maybe we shouldn't just watch Chip and Joanna Gaines. Maybe we should be Chip and Joanna Gaines. Build houses. You know, build build a, a nice, beautiful house that's well-made, that's functional, that's effective, that is organized, that is pleasant to look at and to be in and to be around and be hospitable and encourage other people to come and be a part of your life there. Encourage the neighbor kids to come over and jump on the trampoline. And make it nice to where when they're there, it's a pleasant thing. It's a blessed, beautiful part of their childhood, and it stays with them. Bake cookies. Have the house smell sweet. Put good furniture into these homes that you build. Like you plan to live in them for some time. Like you plan generations of your household and your family to live in them for some time. Plant a garden. Don't be nomads. Don't leave your bags packed. Unpack. Build a house. Plant a garden. Raise a family. Have a good, strong, healthy marriage. You know, tonight, my wife and I are going to get out for a date. First time we've gotten out for a date since... Little Andrew was born. We're going to take him with us. That's all right. He's a little guy. Still needs mom and dad. That's all right. We have a lovely young lady from church who's in the college group who's going to come over and hang out with the kids. I had to explain to the older four boys, no, no, she's not babysitting you guys. Think of it like this. She's coming over. She's going to hang out with you guys. And 
she's going to take a lot of pressure off of you older boys so that you don't have to be watching John and Enoch and Evelyn quite so closely. They won't be getting into trouble quite so easily with her here to hang out with them. Play some games, play some board games. It'll be fun. It'll be cool. Like, don't be offended. But I'm going to take my wife and we're going to go get some barbecue or we're going to have conversation or we're going to spend time building one another up and coordinating our approach to building our house, to raising our sons and daughters. Just one daughter now, but who knows? God willing, we'll have more, possibly. Or we won't. That's fine, too. Someday we will give these sons and daughters in marriage. I'm writing a book right now, actually. This is part of why I'm writing this book. And this is why we got married. You know what? I do want all of my children to get married. And I do want all of my children to have children. I want each and every one of my children to be capable as a husband or a wife, as a father or a mother. I want them to have big, beautiful families. I want them to have big, beautiful homes. I want them to have vehicles that run reliably. I want them to take their wives out for barbecue or to be taken out by their husband, in the case of Evelyn, for barbecue. To multiply, to not decrease. Fun little fact, if each one of my eight children got married and had eight children of their own, in with our newborn, of course, being zero years old, in 35 years, supposing all of my children, all of our children are at least 35 years old, I'll be 70, Lauren will be almost 70, Supposing we live that long, we could potentially have 64 grandchildren. Isn't that wild? If each of our eight children takes a spouse, gets married, which of course they had better if they're going to have eight children, and they'd better invest well in their spouse, that means our eight children plus their spouses, one for each, 16 plus the 64, eight becomes 80 pretty quick. And maybe that's not a short-term solution. That's part of why I podcast. That's part of why I write these little podcast write-ups, episode descriptions, post that to the garrettashleymulletshow.com. But we've got to think more than just short-term. We've got to think Long-term, we've got to think generations. And my view is, suppose you're right, fatalist. Suppose Jesus is coming back next week. Good. I hope he finds me busy. I hope he doesn't find me sitting on my thumbs. I hope he finds me working as unto the Lord. I hope he finds me thinking forward as if in 35 years between my children and their spouses and my grandchildren, we could have get-togethers for Christmas that are 80 people in the house. I hope he finds me busy trying to build a small event center in our backyard so that we can actually have 80 people over when it's just our children and grandchildren. It's fine if he interrupts that 
But what if he doesn't? What if Lord's plan is to not return for 40 years or 400? Well then, I want to leave a godly legacy for the Lord to be pleased with that and for the Lord to bless that. I want God to be honored by that. I believe he is. I'm going to keep working at it. I'm going to keep studying it diligently, applying myself. And wouldn't you know it too, if from two people 15 and a half years ago getting married, Lauren and I, in 50 years, there's 82. And if we have raised our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, if we have given our daughters in marriage and taken wives for our sons, and then they've had sons and daughters, and they've raised their sons and daughters in the fear and admonition of the Lord, well then, where does it go from there? That's possibly how you build a culture. That's possibly how you turn a country around. That's possibly how you see revival and you let it begin in you. You know, think to yourself, what if precisely what I'm saying, precisely what I'm doing, we're going to be emulated by generations to come. Where would that put us? And would that please the Lord? Not in a legalistic sense, but in a well done, good and faithful servant, enter now into your place of rest sense. Some things to think about. In any event, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to run at that. A small announcement, and then I need to get to it. I have been asked to proofread and copy edit a work of Herman Bovinks, which has just been translated from Dutch into English for the first time. It's being published by the Reformed Conservative. I have the next several days to work on that in earnest, so I'm going to jump into that. Just received the manuscript this morning. I'm going to jump into that. Very excited, very honored to do that. I've never read anything by Herman Bovink. I've heard of him. His reputation precedes him, to my mind. So stay tuned for announcements on that. I will probably have some thoughts to share as we go. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.